Every time we eat a meal, we make a choice with Impact Real. The only way our earth will heal is changing what we grow. Was that Seth Goldman singing? Yep, it was. And if you listen into the whole episode, you'll be treated with a full Earth Month sea shanty at the end, featuring Seth, co-founder Spike, and Javier Stark. You're joining the Startup CPG podcast Earth Month episode. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. When you operate in a consumer economy and you're committed to sustainability, you're automatically in a contradiction, right? The, the definition of consume is to devour and destroy. And the definition of sustain is to uphold life. And so the best thing to do is, is to recognize it, be honest about it, do your best to reconcile those contradictions. Today is part three of our podcast series with Seth Goldman, Startup CPG's entrepreneur in residence, who is joining us once a month to talk hot topics in CPG. This episode is all about sustainability, Planet-Based Commitments, and Earth Month. You may know Seth as the co-founder of Honest Tea and author of Mission in a Bottle, and Seth is now the co-founder and CEO of Eat the Change, co-founder of Plant Burger, and chair of the board for Beyond Meat. Listen in as Seth covers how to develop planet-based commitments as a brand, the challenges of recyclable and compostable packaging, how to balance marketing and education about sustainability with the food product, Eat the Change's Earth Month efforts, and more. Hi, Seth. Welcome back to the show today. Thanks, Jesse. Great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you here. And so glad that we get to talk with you during Earth Month and excited to tap into your knowledge about sustainability and eat the changes, planet-based commitments. And so I'm wondering if you could start us out, though, by just telling us a little bit about climate change and the food system and your perspective on the type of change that we can create as food brands and consumers. Sure. And, and you know, for Eat the Change, uh, Earth Month is like our Super Bowl. It's the it's the month we are we feel it's our best chance to you know shout our message out and and the and the message we really you know are all focused on conveying is that the choices we make in our diet are the single biggest daily impact we have on the planet. And so, of course, it's great when you can recycle or bike to work or or take mass transit. Um, but what you choose to eat every day um, has bigger impact on on the planet, on the climate than any other um, daily choice you make. So we seek to reinforce that in every way. And in fact, for Earth Month, we have launched the Incredible Planet Challenge, which is 21 days, the first 21 days of the month. Every day we offer a different step. And they're all they're all small steps, but they're all, you know, cumulatively big steps about helping people make conscious choices about what they eat and how they eat it. And so you know, the first day could, is just, you know, switching from animal-based dairy to plant-based dairy. And that's a, that's a really simple step, whether it's in your coffee or in your tea or your cereal um, and all along the way. And, and so for um, the way we see it, you hear all the messages warning, oh, it's, we only have this many years left. We don't have any years left to um, take action. It needs to happen. It needed to happen 10 and 20 years ago. Uh, but it certainly needs to happen now. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the the challenge. That's awesome. And where where can we learn more about that yeah. if, if people want to participate sure. or yeah. Yeah. Eatthechange.com lists all the different days, all the different steps. And on our social media, we'll be highlighting it all month as well. But of course, you don't need, it's wonderful to join us in the challenge. But if you 
sort of, if you're hearing this in, in the middle of the month, uh, it's fine to, to <laughs> go and start from scratch as well, just because it's, um, you, you may not have missed the first day. All of the steps are obviously steps that can be taken any day. And certainly we think about Earth Month as every month should be Earth Month. Every every day should be, you know, a day when we make choices that are um, consistent with our concerns about the Earth. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us more about Eat the Changes planet-based commitments that you have? I've seen them outlined on your website. I love how detailed they are. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about those. Sure. When we were creating the brand, we were we really um, spent a lot of time, and this is one of the luxuries of, of you know, being in a pandemic. Of course, I'm, I say that a little ironically, it's <laughs> a luxury, but when you're not actively doing commerce, it gives you the chance to think about what kind of brand would you want to create. And so we, we focused on, I actually looked, uh, closely at drawdown.org, which is a resource. It's a you know publicly available resource that lists and prioritizes and ranks the top solutions to address global warming. And so there are 80 solutions listed, but of the, um, the top 20, um, almost half of them are all about food. And so then we said, well, let's make sure we're addressing those. And so some of the highest ranking steps are um, shifting or focusing diet on plant and fungi-based foods. So avoiding animal-based foods. And, and that's just a simple math. You know, I know from my time at Beyond Meat, we did a life cycle analysis there. And we found that a Beyond Burger uses 99% less water, 93% less land, and creates 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. So um, the first important step is to, to make sure everything is plant or fungi-based. The next step is to think about food waste. And so let's make sure we are not using any food waste in any of the, um, creating any food waste in any of the products we use. So for example, when we use a, make a mushroom jerky, we'll use the stem as well. You know, most times when you buy, for example, a portobello mushroom in a grocery store, you're only getting the cap. You're not getting the full mushroom. Uh, but let's also make sure we're not no mushrooms are discarded. So let's use the bruised mushroom or the oversized or undersized mushroom. There's, that's the beauty about mushroom jerky. There's, there's, you know, no one can tell um, because after it's gone through a marinating and smoking process, no one can tell whether it was bruised or undersized or oversized. And then let's also, because water waste is so important, let's, let's focus on crops that are um, water efficient. And so, for example, our, uh, it's not a coincidence that our main uh, product offerings right now are mushroom jerky and carrot-based um, snacks. And the reason is they're super water efficient. So it takes 257 gallons of water to grow a pound of soybeans, and it takes 1,800 gallons of water to, to grow a pound of beef, but it only takes 39 gallons of water to grow a pound of mushrooms and 23 gallons of water to grow a pound of carrots. So for us, focusing on those water-efficient crops is another key step. And then uh, another thing that probably won't surprise you is we always commit to organic. And for us, organic is important because it means fewer chemical pesticides, uh, fertilizers going into the ecosystem. And, and those compounds are, uh, especially the herbicides and pesticides and insecticides, they're designed to kill living organisms. That's that 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 end word psi that that suffix is, <laughs> you know, uh, represents killing. And so, if we can avoid ingesting or putting into our environment compounds designed to kill living organisms, we know that's better for us. Then the fourth commitment is supporting biodiversity. And at Eat the Change, we we bring that to life by focusing on um, crops that aren't as commonly or widely used. There, it turns out there are six crops that represent 57% of all agricultural production. And we avoid 
including any of those. So no soy, corn, wheat, potatoes, rice, or sugarcane are used in our recipes. And then the fifth planet-based commitment is access for all. We want to, in the way we run the business and in the nonprofits we support, we want to help democratize planet-friendly foods to make sure they're not just available to uh, either people in wealthy areas or people with sort of, um, you know, extra levels of education. We want to make them available wherever we can. Yeah, awesome. Those are great. And I love how specific they are. And I, I noticed that, you know, there's not, you're not saying, oh, we're going to be natural or we're going right. to be eco-friendly. You're not listing just those words as, as bullet points. And I'm, I'm wondering if that mm. was, it's, that seems very intentional. That's a really good point. And thanks for pointing it out that, yeah, we want to make sure we're not asking someone to take our word for it. So we don't just say, oh, it's eco-friendly or it's all natural. We, we rely on the organic seal, which is a third party verified um, standard you know, that is federally enforced. And with respect to biodiversity, we aren't just saying we're going to go donate to some, you know, nonprofit rainforest, although, of course, that's, you know, that's wonderful, too. But we're supporting biodiversity um, on our label. You can look at the label and understand there's those ingredients are not included. And so those are steps we wanted to make sure every step could be um, clearly understood and clearly enforced with no uh, gray lines or, you know, the potential for some for, for us to be greenwashing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important because I've seen that consumers will see the word natural and gravitate toward it just because you're like, oh, I want to make better choices. But then you don't necessarily know what that's being backed up by. So that third party validation and understanding the specifics is super important. Absolutely. And you also have, you know, you have packaging, I believe, that's recyclable and finding packaging that is sustainable, compostable. It's really challenging. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've tried to do with packaging, what you hope to do with packaging in the future. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. That's an area where we do not excel. We we initially did set up a fifth commitment as um, trying to make sure our packaging was leading edge sustainable. And our, our mushroom jerky pouches right now are recyclable uh, in the same stream that you can reuse shopping bags. But what we found is that consumers really are not recycling our pouches and that that, um, that element of our commitment, we, we did not formalize that. We, we, we replaced that part of the commitments with access for all because we felt that was one we could carry through on, especially as we launch our kids product. Um, those pouches are not recyclable. And so course, we'd love to be able to use compostable packaging, but we have yet to find a compostable package that is food safe and has the same shelf life as our other products. And so we encourage folks to develop those. We'd love to use them when they're available. But, you know, I I think I want to make sure we're being honest here. We're not over promising what we can deliver on. And though it's aspirational, we'd certainly love to do it. We we decided to take it out of our commitments because we we aren't able to deliver on that as well as we are on the others. Yeah, that makes sense. And the packaging challenge, I I feel that in my heart because at, at Live Bar, uh, they had a compostable wrapper that worked just specifically for a certain pH and it worked on specific equipment, but then trying to 
to scale it when you get a little bit bigger, it was like, oh, okay, well, you can't use the same material. You can't use the same this. And then the, right. the minimum order quantities were like, great. Well, do you want a container of that? And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, we're just a little brand. And so it's right. super, it's super hard for small brands to affect change on the packaging side, I think, because yeah. it's just, there's so much research that needs to be done and to be able to foot the bill of that, you know, I'm hoping that we could get some bigger companies to help, help introduce some change and then you know, the smaller guys can start using some of these innovations because there's so much potential, but it's just, it's so hard as a little brand and the options out there right now just really aren't great. Or they say things like, oh, it's compostable. And you're like, wait, but in how long? And yeah. Or commercial composting facilities, you know, some, yeah. something that you don't have access to. So no, you're absolutely right. And then of course, you know, the worst outcome is your packaging fails and a consumer gets sick. That would obviously yes. not be a good yeah. outcome. Or, or um, something expires, you know, and if food waste is an imperative, then you've got to make sure the food product, you know, is, is usable. And mm-hmm. so... Um, these are these are real challenges, especially on the startup side. But I I just have come to rec- believe that the the large companies are the ones that are going to have to uh, take the mantle of um, developing these. And and certainly small companies once it's proven and and like you say scalable, not doesn't have to be bought at huge quantities. Then the small companies will be the ones willing to to lean into it. But but we can't be the ones um, taking that first risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering what kind of mistakes do you see brands make in regards to being sustainable? We've talked a little bit about kind of avoiding generic terms, yeah, but what, what other mistakes do you, do you see people make? Well, you know, we all have the goal of reducing our packaging, um, but then it's easy to lean too much into that and then say, well, you know, so we're only going to sell in bulk, but that's not how the consumer operates. And so there's that balance. You've got to meet the consumer where the consumer is. And as an example, I'll, I'll share what we've done with our carrot chews. So we're, we're launching these in a, a five pack with five pouches. And so we would use less packaging if we put those five servings all into one big bag. But we have to recognize the landscape, right? The landscape right now is all these fruit chews out there, which aren't fruit at all, but are, you know, call themselves fruit chews. And so parents are, they are opting for convenience. And we have to recognize, we're asking parents to make a change in behavior by shifting from those fruit chews, which their kids know and love and, and are easy to, to drop in a lunchbox. And we can only ask for so much change of behavior. And so our point of view is, well, let's change the behavior. Let's replace those quote unquote fruit chews with real carrots. Um, That's one step of action we can take. And, and, you know, I think we have a shot at replacing. If we ask them to both replace the fruit chews with carrots and then buy it in a bulk bag and then make it into small individual servings, um, that's just a step further than um, where they're comfortable. And and a lot of times when a parent's taking this kind of risk, you know, it sounds silly to call it risk because of course it's better (laughs) for the child and the environment. But when we're asking them to change their behavior, they're often just looking for an excuse to say, oh, it's too hard to do or, oh, I don't have the time or I can't do that. So we've got to meet them on the plane where they are currently behaving, and then we can tweak their behavior from there. But um, so I, I think letting the perfect be the enemy of the good is is a mistake that a lot of mission driven entrepreneurs are often make, and and um, that is a it's a tricky balance. But I want to make sure people are aware of that. Yeah, that makes sense. I could even see 
you know, you sell the the product in bulk or something, and then the busy parent is having to is then going home and using what they have and just putting them in individual Ziplocs or yeah. whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. We gotta it's incremental change uh, that will that will work with with the cons- with the larger consumer population for sure. You know, we had at Beyond Meat. Some people said, well, could you just make your own form of protein? Why, why model it after a burger? Why not make your own form of protein? And that's a neat idea, but we've got to, once again, let's meet the consumer with their current behavior, which is burgers are the single biggest, you know, meat consuming occasion there is, especially with respect to restaurants. So we got to make a burger. Like we can, you know, someday maybe we'll explore some other protein. But if you start asking the consumer to jump through too many hoops, they're going to just you know, resort to their behavior they're accustomed to. Right. And and on that note, I'm wondering your thoughts about marketing or educating consumers about the sustainable aspects of a product. Like in yeah. the past, we've talked about, you know, how you lead with taste or, you know, that there's right. the, the, the planet base behind Eat the Change. So, you know, where do you balance educating consumer marketing that with the product with with the taste and everything else? Well, Earth Month is a great time to really do that deep education. And so that's obviously why we're putting so much resources into our incredible planet challenge. But um, I always and I want to make sure on our website, we have as much information available around the environmental aspects as we can. But on the package, which is we're very limited room, that's where we just we don't want to over uh, overdo it. Um, because as soon as you start talking about organic or even, um, you know, environmentally responsible, consumers start hearing in their heads, they start hearing doesn't taste good, costs more money. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll admit, yeah. you know, if, if for example, I, if I'm, if, uh, this is the contrast my co-founder Barry loved to talk about it. If you're in the toilet paper aisle and you're looking at environmentally friendly toilet paper, you just in your mind think it's more like sandpaper. And so, um, you know, you, so, so you don't want to overemphasize those elements like we in, you know, going back without, cause that's not the job that some, a shopper is hiring us for. They're not saying, I want to go save the earth. Let me go buy, um, you know, a, um, organic mushroom jerky. They may say I'm hungry and I want something delicious. Oh, here's some or, uh, mushroom jerky. Oh, and it's organic. Okay. Oh, and it's a light water footprint. Okay. But we just can't lead with all that um, as a way to get the consumer the first time. And, you know, if the more they we, once if someone wants to dig deep, I want to make sure we have those resources available. But I, we just can't afford to lead with that all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, if you do talk about it, I feel like, you know, having the authenticity to back it up is so key. I got a, a sample of a product the other day that said it was natural and eco-friendly, like we talked about. And there was like four different layers of packaging that I had to get through, get to the food, to the plastic that was then in a metal (laughs) container. And I was like, what? Like, I I felt like I was, you know, unpacking, I I was solving some sort of puzzle to get to the product. And I was (laughs) like, you know, you, you put these claims on there, but just my initial experience doesn't match up with this. And so you're, you're marketing something that really isn't authentic. Yeah, it's 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 a challenge for sure. And and you know the good news is most consumers now have enough awareness, certainly of the concerns, and and they're educating themselves more and more. So you know we've always known organic is a great shorthand to let people know we've taken care with respect to how we grow and cultivate this product. And of course, 
fair trade, you know, was was a really useful way to express our concern and, and responsibility with respect to the workers. And, you know, some of these new commitments, those aren't things people necessarily know about, certainly around biodiversity or plant or fungi based. So we, we've got to educate as much as we can. But, you know, part of what Eat the Change is about is educating the consumer. One one really fun example, and we have to educate buyers as well. So we launched the carrot chews. We presented them to one buyer and that buyer said, well, you know, I, the carrot chew, I mean, the, the fruit chews I sell are all the same size and they're all, you know, why don't you take your carrots and stamp out little, you know, make them into little <laughs> dinosaurs. I said, the problem is that's going to create waste. If we, That means that it's parts of the carrot we wouldn't be using. Um, so let's use the whole carrot and let's try to educate both parents and children about this is what a natural product looks like. And this is what it, you know, this is how it behaves. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to take on some of that education ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of organic, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of us see the organic label a lot, but until you have a brand and you go through the organic certification process, and I've been through it, it's, it's a lot in a good way. And I'm wondering if you can kind of describe the, you know, getting certified organic, um, the process and what it involves for us. Yeah, no, it's very thorough process. And it, it really means that there's a paper trail from the soil to the, through the production facility. It means that, you know, someone's inspecting where your product is grown. So if it's, um, you know, carrots, they're looking at soil samples. They're looking at, uh, obviously what is put in the field. Uh, and then they're looking at how the, they're processed. They'll want to make sure there's no um, artificial ingredients involved or even in the cleaning of the line, there's certain products allowed to clean the equipment, um, but but others that are not allowed. Um, and then obviously in the recipe as well, they need to make sure whether it's um, other flavorings or the the way the product is treated that, you know, there's the, no irradiation, for example. So really um, a, a levels of paperwork that's involved and, and, and so we work with a, a local certifier called Pennsylvania Certified Organic. We've worked with them ever since, going back to my Honest Tea days, ever since 1998. And, um, and then they are um, certified or approved by the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so um, it's a very thorough process. And it certainly um, should give consumers a great deal of confidence about how these products are grown um, all the way through the way they're processed. Yeah, absolutely. After sitting through my first organic audit, Live Bar used uh, Oregon Tilth as a certifier. I was like, wow, when I see that logo, I thought, you know, I would think about myself sitting at the table going through all the documents and tracking everything. And I was like, wow, there's a level here of tracing that just is really cool. And the transparency right. is, is really amazing. Yeah. And it's a really good point also, because, you know, there's, there are other seals out there. There's the non-GMO seal and, and other things, but organic really encompasses all of them. So organic does also stipulate that it, the product is non-GMO and, uh, there's just a lot behind that seal. It, and, and it's something that, um, you know, we've always been committed to and invested to in all the different um, honest tea and eat the change. And and it is it. What's nice about it is it's a great example where the government has created an incentive without a mandate. So no one is required to grow something organically. But if you do want to take that step, you can use that seal and um, 
you know, sort of aspire. So it's a great example of a carrot rather than a stick to uh, move toward um, more sustainable agriculture. Yeah. And I, I see this question a lot from from founders that have maybe they've started out and they're they're not necessarily organic, but, you know, maybe they're being careful with their sourcing and they're like, at what point do I need to get certified organic or, you know, I can't quite mm. afford it or what tips do you have for brands that yeah. are like, I want to, you know, it's a goal for, of me, <laughs> for, of mine to have that seal. How do I get there? When do yeah. I get there? So I have um, some, <laughs> no surprise, some strong opinions on it. So I think that any emerging food entrepreneur should be really working hard toward organic because part of what we're doing as entrepreneurs is offering something that's not in the marketplace. And so, you know, the big companies usually will have a large uh, supply chain for conventional. And, and when we can make something special and different, we're able to charge a premium for it. So that's one aspect from a competitive point of view. That said, when we started Honest Tea, it wasn't uh, all organic. We used or we only were able to use organic where we had enough of the supply chain in place to make it economically viable. So we started with uh, organic sugar, and then we found some organic uh, green tea, and then we found some organic black tea, uh, and then we just continued to move along. And then for us, the next step was making sure we had enough organic sugar. And so um, uh, not just organic sugar, but organic fair trade sugar. And we didn't commit to organic fair trade sugar until we were confident we were not buying most of the market. So initially, there just wasn't enough of a market for organic fair trade sugar that basically we would be buying the only supply. And we realized, wow, if that supplier goes out of business, um, we, we're going to have to switch, which you can't do as, as a company. Once you're up and running, you can't just sort of, you know, you have product on the market, you can't switch labels that quickly. So, you know, you want to work with suppliers to develop their supply chain. And, and we started doing that with tea. We, we had suppliers, once we committed to our first organic tea, which is in 1999, we let everybody know this was the path we were on. And that if you wanted to be our supplier in the future, you were going to have to be organic. And that continued through our time with Coca-Cola. And we said, now we're organic and we're fair trade. And so if you want to um, be able to be considered by us, this is, that's what you'll have to do in terms of your certifications. And so it's not too early to say this, to set your intention, um, but you, you got to make sure you're not doing it in a way that you know exposes you to supply chain risk, which of course there's so much of today. Um, you, you certainly can't run out. Uh, and then you also don't want it to be so narrow the supply chain is so thin that, you know, a, a, a climate shock or a disease shock would, would throw off your cost of goods to the point where you'd lose money. So there's definitely some thought needed behind it. But from my point of view in food, you really want to go there. And I'll just, the one exception, I'll, I'll give the example of Beyond Meat because that is not yet organic, but because it's such a nascent supply chain, um, you know, for, for many years with Beyond Meat, we were just scrambling to find enough ingredients. And so we certainly weren't in a place where we said, okay, well, you know, we're going to go to organic. And, and so there's a long-term aspiration to see um, Beyond Meat be able to offer organic products, but um, it's just not, it can't be a priority when we're still scrambling to make this product enough of it and to make it price competitive with conventional meat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm also wondering, I had seen mentioned on your website, the the how to recycle third party um, company. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that. And I was wondering if you could describe that a little bit. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, resource for people that it, you can go to the website and you'll be able to um, learn what can be recycled. And of course, one of the huge challenges with our national recycling system is that there is no national recycling system. It's all these different regions. 
and even different municipalities. And so it is, it, so you may have a package that certain parts are recyclable in one area and not others. And so that how to recycle bug will help you know what you use in that product that is recyclable. And we, we use that at, at Honest Tea as well. Um, but, you know, that does highlight a real um, systemic challenge that needs to happen. So when we launched Honest Tea in Germany, it was amazing. We, we were able to set, um, find a bottle that could be recycled and reused nationally. And that's just because there was a national system. But of course, in the United States, where literally one county might recycle glass and one county might not, you just are always, um, the cons- there's a lot of uncertainty and that that is such a barrier to, to changing behavior. Yeah, absolutely. It's when I used to work at Adidas and we would do events around the country, Adidas has a big sustainability push. And so if, you know, any food waste from a big event or whatever is like, all right, we got to figure out what can be recycled locally. And in a lot of places, it was so challenging. They're like, we don't we don't recycle these things. If you know, we can separate them for you, but we'll just take them (laughs) to the dump afterwards. And we're like, well, okay, no, let's not do that. And so then figuring out, you know, okay, how are we going to do this? But it's super challenging when there's not the infrastructure everywhere to support it. Well, and it creates ethical issues even for the entrepreneur. So, you know, uh, we knew um, at Honesty that Alaska does not recycle glass bottles. And so, mm. you know, is, is it ethical to, to sell glass to Alaska? You basically know it's going to landfill, but then you say, well, is it ethical to sell any package if only 30% of people are recycling? <laughs> You'd rather, so, you know, it, it's just, um, there's continuous challenges out here. And I guess what it highlights, and um, this is something I've said before, is that when you operate in a consumer economy, you always, and you're committed to sustainability, you're automatically in a contradiction, right? The, the definition of consume is to devour and destroy, and the definition of sustain is to uphold life. And so you automatically are in that contradiction. And, and I think the, the, the best thing to do is, is to recognize it, be honest about it, do your best to reconcile those contradictions. But I, I don't think you'll ever be able to fully reconcile them. Right. And being being in the fight and putting things out there and trying to to be different and to be better in incremental ways that's how we're going to make change if we just if we if we're like well we can't find a perfect solution so let's not do anything that's <laughs> right. not a good solution so be you know right. playing in the gray area and trying to make it work with the best intentions for the planet and for everyone i think is that's where we have to keep playing in the in the rough spot. That's right. I agree. Do you have any other stories maybe from, you know, honest tea or any, you know, any other time kind of through your career of, you know, challenges with sustainability, especially as a company grows? Well, to me, one of the themes certainly through the honest tea journey is to really keep an eye on your destination and, and recognize that it'll take time. And, and so fair trade for us was a really interesting lesson. And, and I'll, the reason I'm talking about fair trade um, in the context of sustainability, because yes, fair trade is, is about social responsibility. It's about the, the wages we pay, but it also has a really um, significant environmental impact as well. And let me explain what I mean. So within Project Drawdown, one of the top five uh, steps they take, they suggest for addressing global warming is educating women and girls. And so you'd say, well, wait a minute, why is that a... Uh, why is that an environmental initiative? Well, it turns out that when you educate women and girls, they have not just economic independence, but they marry later in life and they have fewer children. And so when we think about reducing the environmental footprint of humans, having fewer footprints, meaning fewer people, is actually a really important step. And so we wanted to 
Uh, we brought out the, the world's first fair trade certified bottled tea in 2003. And we were so excited about it. We were like, well, could we make everything fair trade? And we looked at the supply chain and we just couldn't get there. We would either have to raise our price or change our ingredients or, or lower our margins, which we weren't willing to do. And so we, we set on that path and uh, it took eight years um, through 2011 to get everything to be fair trade certified in terms of the tea. And that, you know, but today, uh, as we look at it, so that was 2003, that meant for five years, 2011. So now uh, basically uh, 11 years, uh, Honest Tea has been completely fair trade certified. So it was worth the time and the effort and the patience to get it right. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, you, you're impatient, you want change to happen quickly and for all the right reasons, but you've got to understand if you're in it for the long game, um, it's, it's okay to, to, to do it deliberately and, and with a little more uh, patience. Yeah. And does the, does the fair trade certification process, is that similar to the organic process where you're kind of looking at the whole, the whole supply chain and the social aspects and making sure everything's transparent and then being yeah. audited or how does that work? Yeah. So there are audits for fair trade. Those happen at the garden level. So, or the farm level. So, you know, at, at a tea garden, they'll look at the wages, the workers are paid. They'll look at the working conditions, obviously make sure there's no child or prison labor. And then there's a portion of the sales that um, go back to a council of workers. And it's it's really um, one that is exciting because it the, work, the council is the a rep, a representative of the working population. So in tea gardens, especially in India and, and Sri Lanka, most of the pluckers are women. And so Fair trade empowers these women. It gives them economic means that they would not normally have an economic governance over their community. They have a say in how the money is spent. So often it gets spent on schools, uh, but often it, it would also be spent on healthcare or on in, even infrastructure. You know, um, I was at a fair trade sugar farm in uh, Paraguay and they, would, they actually spent the money, um, their fair trade funds on, a, on an ambulance because they didn't have access to um, any hospitals nearby. So if there was uh, a health emergency, they could use the ambulance. And so um, it's just interesting to see it, what's great about it is it lets the community define their priorities as opposed to an outside one. I remember we had a company meeting once and I showed uh, my you know, pictures of a trip for, to, from, to India. And one of our sales leaders said, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could build a playground for this community? They didn't have any, any playground. And it was a fun idea. But when I went to the, to the council and said, this was an idea, they're like, that's not, it's just not what our economic concern is right now. They wanted, instead, they said, we, we, we would much rather spend this money on eye care. We, we have both students and adults who, um, you know, need glasses. And so we helped fund a project to um, bring in eye care doctors to this community and, and not just the, the, the workers, but actually the village itself. And so thousands of people got um, either eyeglasses or diagnosed with, you know, for, for different eye conditions. And that helped raise the literacy, but it also helped improve the work because people could see what they were doing. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. And very cool that it comes back to the community to make the, the decisions on what's best for them. That that makes a lot of sense. Right. I also, I saw recently that, um, I think it was on LinkedIn, you had posted about, you know, um, like investors talking about looking for products that are 10% better than what's on the market. And I think you had said something like, you know, maybe we're not a fit because we're doing radical change. And <laughs> I, right. I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, kind of 
you know, some, we've talked about some incremental change and yeah, that just, that was a, a, I thought that was an interesting perspective. Well, and I think it's especially important in the startup CPG community because um, first of all, our food system is the bulk of it is just in the wrong direction. We're, we're feeding people unhealthy food that doesn't help support life on the planet. And, and we're just doing more of that. And, and so all the trends for health indicators are, are in the wrong direction. I've mentioned this before that the U.S. is in the you know, high 30s in terms of average life expectancy compared to you know, countries everywhere from Japan, China and Switzerland, which are doing so much better. And, and the U.S. should be doing so much better. So we've got to change the food system. And, and the incremental changes those are those can happen by the big companies, and there there are big companies making incremental changes, and and that's I it's mostly what you can expect from big companies because they're kind of stuck where they are, so they aren't going to go make really daring bold changes. Um, but it's us, the entrepreneurs, who should be making those daring bold changes. And so you know, uh, when I was with Honest Tea, we had actually explored this space of a kid snack, and we did look at you know could we make a fruit snack that maybe instead of eighty calories is seventy calories or maybe has a little more fiber, but those aren't material changes. And, and like I said, those are, um, you know, that there's, they're certainly better than what's out there. But um, now that I'm fully entrenched as a star, you know, challenger brand at Eat the Change, there's no point in Eat the Change offering a, a little, a somewhat healthier fruit snack. We wanted to turn the whole category on its head. And that's why we brought out this first vegetable-based snack for kids to go in a lunchbox. And that's, that's a fundamentally different offering. It's, you know, instead of a, a product with basically no nutritional value or marginal nutritional value. It's a full serving of carrots in a pouch. Um, and, and so it's just clearly better if we can get the consumer to adopt it. But I, I feel like from a, the competitive standpoint, it's not compelling to a buyer. The world's too competitive. It's not compelling to a buyer to say, oh, I'll, I'll take this product that's you know, marginally better especially when a big company is already exi- you know, offering the existing product, has more funds, can offer it at a cheaper price. So it's just, it's not our job. And I go back to, you know, what is our job? What would an investor quote unquote hire you for? They wouldn't hire you to make a, a marginally better product. They'll hire you to change, you know, to turn an industry on its head and really grab new opportunities. That's what our charter is. That's what we should be focused on as entrepreneurs. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And so what's next at Eat the Change? As, <laughs> as, you know, what, what else is planned beyond this Earth Month? Well, that's, that's a lot for us. You know, Earth Month, like I said, it is our Super Bowl. So we're putting a ton of resources and, and energy into that. We, one fun surprise we did. At, so at the end of last Earth Month, we got... Um, uh, my co-founder Spike and, and my son Joan and I got in a canoe and we put together a sea shanty that was a really fun and engaging way to uh, <laughs> bring it to life. And so we're already working on the sequel to that. We are um, uh, going to be filming it uh, just in, in a few days and we'll look forward to sharing it with people. But, um, you know, it, it's it, part of it is having fun with this. Like we can't be lecturing people all about the earth. I mean, it, the, the earth is in a very dire and serious wet place, but that is let's let's at least make the message approachable and engaging and get people's attention. And hopefully we can get to them with the, the serious messages, too. But we've got to find creative ways to bring it to life. And, and so that's what um we'll be sharing with people shortly. Awesome. That sounds great. I think we need more sea shanties uh, just in general and on the and on the podcast maybe. That sounds great. That's right. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up? No, I think um 
you know, it, it, it is a, it's such an important moment and, and we really hope this is a generational shift that we're marking here. So we always think about this as a movement, you know, this, yes, it's a brand and, uh, but it's a movement and we really want all players from all sides to do everything they can uh, to take, whether it's their individual choices or their corporate choices, um, steps we, we can all take to, to move things in, in a better direction. And so, you know, for us, eat the changes, it's a call to action, but it's also a call to empowerment and to accountability. Great. Well, thank you so much, Seth. This has been super great to, to, hear your thoughts and discuss super important topic. I'm excited to share this with your community and excited to have you back on the show here again soon. All right, Jesse. Great to be with you. Every time we eat a meal, we make a choice with Impact Real. The only way our earth will heal is changing what we grow. Our planet's like a ship at sea, tossed and turned by climate. We must choose our foods more mindfully. We reap what we sow. Huh. The biggest issue is food waste. One third is grown that we don't taste. It's tossed and lost in time and space. Don't let it overflow. Our planet's like a ship at sea, tossed and turned by climate. We must choose our foods more mindfully. We reap what we sow. Huh. A fifth of global gases comes from Animals who could be chums, plant-based saves enormous sums of water, land, and more. Our planet's like a ship at sea, tossed and turned by climate. We must choose our foods more mindfully. We reap what we sow. Huh. Pesticides and herbicides. Kill weeds and bugs and more besides. The organic seal helps you decide which farmers you should know. Our planet's like a ship at sea. It can be saved by you and me. Eat the change you want to see. We reap what we sow. Huh. Snack to the future. Straight out the 301. Getting nautical witty. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to Eat the Change for sharing their Sea Shanty featuring Seth Goldman, Spike Mendelson, and Javier Stark, and ocean-themed music courtesy of Aaron Kenny. This Startup CPG podcast is executive produced by me, Jesse Freitag. Theme music is by the Super Fantastics. We'd love to have you join our community of founders and experts. Get the invite at startupcpg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. It's the easiest way to help us grow our community. See you next time.